Hi, it's Paul Coker here from transformyourdiabetes.com. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about diabetic retinopathy, and I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Becky Thomas. Dr. Thomas is a senior research officer at Swansea University, specialising in the epidemiology of diabetic eye disease. It's fair to say that her speciality is in the progression of diabetic eye disease and not in the treatment. So this podcast is going to be talking about the different types of diabetic eye disease and and what it means when we get results through telling us that changes have been detected in our eyes as a result of our diabetes. If you want to see the slides that Becky's referring to in this podcast, if you drop on over to transformyourdiabetes.com, you can get the video that goes with this. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Becky. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to share my screen, hopefully. Can everyone see that? Yeah. Yep. Always a good start. Right. So as Paul said, I'm a senior research officer in Swansea University, so I'm not an ophthalmologist, um, but my interest in um, retinopathy began way back in 2003 when I was um, a, a retinal grader at the uh, Welsh Screening Service. So I've got quite a lot of background in in grading the images, what those scary letters mean um, and how the screening process works, especially in Wales. Um, but I did also work for a time in um, the Gloucester screening programme um, under Peter Scanlon. Um, so I do know a bit about how it works in England. It's not that different. Um, and I do know what the setup is in Scotland and Northern Ireland as well. So um, we're all fairly similar but as this says this is all about the eyes um so we'll go from there so before we start i thought i'd get you sort of orientated with the with the retina and what we are actually looking at so this is a small part of the retina so the retina goes across the whole of the back of the eye um but this is only a really tiny part that we take the images of um and this is because these are the areas where if anything happens in these areas, then it, it becomes more immediately sight-threatening. And um, so that's why we, we particularly focus on these and not the whole um, of, the, of the retina that, that's there. But basically we have the um, optic disc here, um, and this is also known as a blind spot. Um, so this is where all of the nerves, all of the blood vessels come in uh, from the brain into the eye. Um, so there's no vision here as as it is, but you know it is an important um, important feature as well. Um, this arrow here is pointing at the, this darker red area on the retina. So this is uh, what's called the fovea. So this is where you get all of your central vision from, all your reading, all your fine detail, um, that sort of thing. It all comes from the the fovea. So your ability to read is all from this one little spot in the middle. Um, the area around it here, this is called the macula area. So this is basically one disc diameter. So one optic disc diameter all the way around. Um, and this is an important area when we start talking about maculopathy. So that's why I'm pointing that out. And then these, um, these are the arcades. You've got your blood vessels, your arteries and your veins. Um, and these are the, the main arcades then in, in the eye. Um, but in England and Wales, we take two 45 degree images of the eye. So we take the central, the macular one here, 
that we've just looked at. But then we also make you look at your nose and we take um, a wider view um, of the, the nasal view, which is as it's known. Scotland, they only take the macular centered image. Um, and this is because they believe that any um, lesions of significance would be picked up from just this one image. Um, but in England and Wales, we'd rather get a, a wider view if possible. We all love to hate the eye drops, um, but they are quite important for screening. They allow us to take uh, multiple images of your eyes. So if the eye drops work in that they dilate the pupil, so they make it bigger, allow more light inside it, you get the same effect by sitting in a dark room for 10 to 20 minutes. Um, but that method wouldn't fix the pupil, so it wouldn't stay dilated. So as soon as that really bright flash comes from the camera, the pupils constrict and we can't get um, a decent second or, or second image or take the second eye either. Um, younger people have faster pupil recovery time, so it, it is possible in somebody maybe under the age of 30, especially those with blue eyes. If you have brown eyes like me, um, our pupils don't um, dilate as quickly, they don't react as quickly as blue eyes do. Um, so it could be possible in those younger people, you might get away with um, not using uh, eye drops, but as we get older, we do really need them to get a, a decent image. So then we go into background retinopathy. So this is the first level of retinopathy, this first sign of changes um, that we would see in your eyes. Um, so this is uh, an R1 level. It's a really wide category. So you can have anything from a single microaneurysm, which is a small red blood spot, um, which is you can might just, if your eyesight's good enough, uh, see it here where I'm pointing. Um, there's a red, really small red dot. Now, these are the really first signs of changes. And if we don't have a good enough photograph, we can easily miss these. Um, so that's why the, um, the eye drops are so important. But it, it, this category goes from a single microaneurysm um, all the way up to... Um, several hemorrhages so several large um, bleeds um, so in this in this image here we've got one two three four five six seven eight you know we've got more than eight um, we've got quite a few hemorrhages going on in this eye and then in this side we've also got some cotton wool spots so these are, are white patches um, which are ischemic, so they're lacking in oxygen. So because the blood is leaking out instead of being supplied all around the eye nicely, uh, they, they become oxygen deprived or ischemic. So these, these white patches, it's also, this eye's also got some um, exudates, so fatty deposit lipids that are leaking out of the vessels as well um, going on. So it's quite a wide category. So when you get um, a screening letter back that says you've got background retinopathy, you, you really don't know whether you're down this end or whether you're up at this end, um, unfortunately. But, you know, it is background retinopathy, so it's not sight-threatening. We would only rescreen you in 12 months' time for this category. Um, <clears throat> but we would recommend um, really trying to concentrate on looking after your blood glucose levels, your blood pressure, and your lipids. Um, and it can really make a difference, big difference, in delaying any of this retinopathy from getting any worse. 
Oh, too far. Oh. Right. So then we've got maculopathy. So maculopathy is graded separately from retinopathy. Um, and it can occur at any point with retinopathy. So it can occur when you've just got background retinopathy or when you've got pre-proliferative or proliferative retinopathy, which I'll go on to, to talk about later on. Um, but maculopathy is lesions that appear within that macular area that I pointed out um, in the first slide. So that one, one this diameter circle around you, any lesions occurring within there would be thought of as maculopathy. So here we've got those exudates again, so the fatty deposits. In background retinopathy, they would be out here, but as soon as they come into that macular area, it is now maculopathy. Um, and we're just really protective in screening over this fovea because we know how important it is and um, any issues in this area can be site-threatening. Now, because we are protective over this area, we do over-refer uh, maculopathy. So a lot of the times we would refer the, this um, eye here on the left, we might refer this into ophthalmology, they'd have one check and they'd come straight back out uh, to us at screening. So being referred for retinopathy doesn't necessarily mean you go into lose your sight or that you're going to need treatment. It is just for those extra further tests um, that the ophthalmologist can do that we can't do in screening. Because from this image here, I can't tell. What we want to know is whether there's any fluid leaking within the retina itself. And I can't tell that from a flat 2D image. So in ophthalmology, they would take, um, they use a what's called an OCT camera. So it's optical coherence tomography camera. And that measures the thickness of the retina um, to see if there's any swelling, any fluid buildup within. So that's what we need. That image is what we need. And that then determines whether or not there is any um, need for treatment, depending on how, how thick it is really. But so this, this first year, although it's maculopathy, um, it is quite early um, and they may well just come straight back into screening. These last three images here, these are more, um, more significant maculopathies. Um, this, the exudate here form in a circle. So this is um, a circinate. Um, and in the center of this, we could suspect that there would be some fluid buildup, some swelling, um, some, some edema forming. Um, and certainly then in, in these two images out here, um, and, and definitely this one, I would suspect that there would be some fl fluid buildup underneath this. Um, so this is this is all maculopathy. Um, the um, treatment for this would be is now um, anti VEGF injections. So VEGF stands for oh god, I can't remember now. But anti VEGF injections, they would inject um, things into the eye that inhibits the VEGF production um, and, and hopefully stops, um, stops this developing and getting any worse. Um, if you did, if you do, um, there are some services in England, I believe, that have the OCT cameras as part of screening um, and they would then have screening surveillance, surveillance clinics at three to six months um, recall. So you could go into one of those but in Wales, we don't uh, have those as yet, maybe something for the future. But um, 
yeah, we, we haven't got the OCT camera. So we would refer you in to ophthalmology just to have that extra image taken. At this point, it would be still really important to optimize that blood glucose um, management, blood pressure and lipids. It really can make a difference um, in helping to limit the amount of treatment that you might, might need. Going back to retinopathy, we've got this pre-proliferative level. So this is now we're into the R2 stage. So we've gone from those multiple hemorrhages um, and uh, microaneurysms. There's a lot more hemorrhaging and cotton wool spots going on in this stage um, of, of retinopathy. So we've got quite a few hemorrhages here in this eye. This eye has an awful lot of cotton wool spots. So if you remember, these are the ischemic patches, so they're not being supplied uh, with oxygen. Um, and then in this eye, we have all of it going on as well as some exudates. Um, and then this final eye, we've got some changes going on in this uh, vein. I don't know if you can see them. It's especially down here. But what we like to think about when we're looking at this, is called venous beading. So there's changes in the shapes of the veins. But if you think of a string of sausages with it, where all the meat is, they're fat. And then where you twisted all the skin together, it becomes thin and then it gets fat again. That is what is basically happening in this, uh, in this eye. This is what it looks like in this vein. Um, it's, it's thick and then thin and then thick and then thin all the way along it. So you've got some changes going on there. Again, in Wales, we would probably refer you into ophthalmology at this stage, um, but in England, you do have some, some areas that would have surveillance clinics, so you'd be on three to six months recourse. This stage doesn't yet require treatment, but we really would be monitoring this because this would be at risk of developing further now into the proliferative category, and we'd want to pick that up um, as soon as possible. So when we go into the proliferative retinopathy, so this is the R3 stage, um, you're looking at new vessels forming. So this is where those ischemic patches, those areas that the eye um, isn't getting any oxygen, the eye is trying to resupply those areas with oxygen. So it's growing its own vessels. Um, so in this, eye, in this image here, we've got some here um, on the arcade forming. We've also got some on the optic disc here, all these squiggly messiness on the, um, on the optic disc. Second image now, we've got them here. Um, and then the problem with these new vessels is that they are really weak and fragile and they'll quite easily break um, and then start bleeding. So then we get these pre-retinal hemorrhages. These are these boat-shaped hemorrhage, hemorrhages on the eye. So it's a straight line at the top and then it, um, dips down into like a, a boat shape. So these are pre-retinal hemorrhages. And then if they continue on from this stage, they develop into um, a vitreous hemorrhage. So this is the new vessels are growing out off the retina into the jelly-like vitreous substances in everybody's eyes. Um, and they, they break and they bleed um, and they will fill the, the whole eye with blood. Um, if you do get a vitreous hemorrhage, um, the ophthalmologist can't treat it at that stage. They have to wait for the, for the blood to be reabsorbed by the eye so that they can see actually the area that they need to laser. Um, so there would be a delay in treatment until this sort of resolved at this point. Um, 
ideally what we want to be doing is using laser um, in this sort of stage when um, when we've got the new vessels just starting to grow because then we would need less laser therapy um, and um, it would be treated a lot quicker um, and at this stage we'd need quite a lot of, of laser to treat some of these images um, and laser itself is a destructive process so it's actually killing the retina that it touches um, and that's to stop the eye then thinking that it, it needs to keep resupplying that area and keep growing these new vessels so we don't want to use too much laser so we maintain as much vision as possible but we need to use enough laser so that um, we don't get any more growth of new blood vessels. Um, you can use uh, anti-VEGF therapy in this uh, state as well as the maculopathy um, and um, they've had great success and it actually helps to regress the new vessels as well so that again um, you need less laser therapy. So why do we screen? It's because um, retinopathy, you wouldn't notice any changes to your vision until quite a late stage. So it's, it's probably when these bleeds start happening or when um, the fluid is already leaked in uh, maculopathy that you would actually notice any change to your eyesight and treatment works better if it's done earlier than that. So we get better visual outcome from the treatment. So. We screen so that we can detect it at the earliest stage when the treatment is most effective. So that is all about retinopathy and those scary, what those scary um, letters mean that you get from screening all the time. Um, but basically the main message is if you are referred from screening into ophthalmology, it's more to get extra tests rather than you need treatment and there's something wrong. Um, we're just being you know, extra cautious because there's only so much we can see and do in screening. So when we go on now to look at the risk of progression. So if you've got no retinopathy in your eye, your chances of developing referable eye disease within the next um, three years is sort of one in 15. So it's, it's quite a low risk within the next three years that you're going to develop a, a serious problem. If you've got background retinopathy in one eye, this risk um, reduces to a one in 50 chance within the next three years. Um, if you've got background retinopathy in both eyes, um, then this chance really does reduce to one in four um, within the next three years that you might develop a referable level of retinopathy. So once you've got background retinopathy, your risk of progression is that much more. So what we want to do is try and delay it developing uh, for as long as possible, really. So what are the risk factors for retinopathy? So there, there are a lot of risk factors, um, but there are things that you can change, things you can do something about, and there's things that you can't. Um, so your high, um, if you've got high blood glucose, if you've got high blood pressure or high cholesterol, if you can lower these, then um, you do reduce your risk of developing retinopathy. Um, it doesn't reduce to zero. There's still a chance that you could develop it, um, but it does reduce. The things you can't change, you can't do anything about how long you've had your diabetes for, unfortunately. Um, ethnicity, so if you're, um, if you're South Asian, if you're African-American, um, you are at higher risk of developing um, retinopathy. 
When you become pregnant, unfortunately, there is a higher risk of retinopathy developing. Um, it could be from the pregnancy hormones and it, it could be from um, reducing uh, glucose levels. Um, puberty, there is some evidence, although it's a bit uh, shaky as to, to which way it goes, that puberty plays a part. Um, and I think it's probably something to do with the hormones uh, around at that time. And your genes, there's also your genes do play a big part because even if you have been, you know, managing your blood glucose forever and it's been always been really good, you've never had a high HbA1c result, um, you could still develop retinopathy. Um, and we've seen it in some who've had really high HbA1c's all the way through um, having diabetes and they never get uh, diabetic retinopathy. So it really is um, something going on in the genes that we really don't know about um, and there needs to be more research into that. So this slide um, tends to get a bit scary, I think, but it's basically saying that after 20 to 25 years of having type 1 diabetes, 80 to 90% would develop some form of retinopathy. Now, most of that is going to be the background level. And you can see here, I've segmented off the um, referable retinopathy. So that's the dotted line. So that is about 20 to 30% would develop referable retinopathy after 20 to 25 years. So it's a lot less than the any retinopathy line of 80%, because obviously that kind of seems like it's going to be inevitable that everybody will develop retinopathy. But um, it is the background level that, that we're looking at mainly in, in this line here. Um, and this study, this was a systematic review um, of, I can't remember, about 32 different studies um, looking at progression of retinopathy. And uh, these HbA1c results here, these are in old money, they're in percentages. Um, so if you have an HbA1c of 7% or less, then um, around about 18% will have some form of retinopathy. And 5.4 uh, of that would be of a vision-threatening retinopathy level. So that is your proliferative and your macular edema levels, your maculopathies. Um, so even at low HbA1c results, we still find some people getting um, diabetic retinopathy, unfortunately. But as uh, the HbA1c increases, so once you get above 9%, 51% would have um, some form of retinopathy. And 18% of that would be the vision threatening um, level. So it is quite a big jump um, between those HbA1c levels. Blood pressure hasn't got as much of a jump, but it still um, does in these, makes a big difference in these um, sight threatening categories. So if you have a blood pressure of 140 over 90 or less, then 30, 31% um, would have some form of retinopathy. Once it's above that, it's almost 40%. Um, and the vision threatening forms uh, go from 7.6% um, up to 18%. Again, total cholesterol levels, they don't play a huge part in um, the retinopathy levels. It's more the maculopathy side of things that they seem to have a difference. Um, so if, you, if your total cholesterol is below four, then 4.6% um, would have um, a, a diabetic macular edema this refers to. 
Um, once it's above four, it's it increases to six point eight percent. I don't know how many of you are aware or know of the early worsening of retinopathy phenomenon, um, but it has been shown in several studies. So if you have um, retinopathy present, um, then a large and rapid reduction in HbA1c has been shown to worsen the diabetic retinopathy and make it progress quicker than it normally would. Um, so it's been shown in studies of initiation of um, insulin therapy in type two diabetes. It's also been shown in, in intensification studies. So that big um, DCCT trial um, actually showed it as well. We've seen it in pregnancy um, and also for, following bariatric surgery. And the latest one was in the initiation of GLP-1 therapies, the semaglutide. Um, so that was a sustain six trial. Um, but what do I mean by large and rapid? So in sustained six, it was a 2% reduction was seen in the first 16 weeks of the study. So what we say is 2% reduction in a two to three months period would um, be at risk if the retinopathy was already present. If there isn't any retinopathy, then there is no risk of it actually developing. Um, and this is mainly seen in those who's got who already have a HbA1c of over 10%. So if you have a HbA1c of 8% and you're going to reduce it down to 6%, it's probably not going to um, have an issue. But at the higher HbA1c levels, if you do have this rapid reduction, um, then it, it could be a problem. It's something that you, you should be aware of and to look out for. Um, it's not always something you can control. So if you start a new technology, if you start um, if you start GLP-1, a new therapy, um, then you need to be aware that this is a risk so that you would tend your screening. And if you are under an ophthalmologist, then they should be aware that um, there's a potential that this could happen so that they can monitor you more frequently, basically. Because obviously, as we know, you know, a lower um, blood glucose levels, they a lower HbA1c, it has far-reaching consequences. So it, it, it goes way beyond the eye and has you know, benefits for all the other organs in your body. So um, we can't be saying to people, don't do it. But if you can do it slowly and gradually, so you know, maybe 1% over six months, um, it would be better than trying to do it all, all in that really initial period. There is another treatment for retinopathy, um, and this is a statin. It's called phenofibrate. Um, it's been shown in two studies. This field study, which took place in Australia, and then the Accord Eye study, which was a European trial. Um, they used phenofibrate. It, it worked on the retinopathy even when it didn't lower um, cholesterol levels. So they're not really sure what the mechanism of action is for phenofibrate. Um, but it has been shown to reduce the progression of retinopathy um, and it mainly works in the maculopathy states um, and ophthalmologists do quite like it. Um, but it's only had its license changed in Australia. Um, so phenofibrate in Australia is licensed for use in diabetic retinopathy, but it's not in the UK or any other country as far as I'm aware. Um, so it would, if phenofibrate is 
mentioned by an ophthalmologist to be used, it would need to be a discussion between um, primary care and secondary care to, to try and see whether or not it would have any benefits um, and what the consequences, you know, side effects and things that they would need to think about. As I've mentioned, as we've gone through, there is treatment available for retinopathy. So if you do develop sight-threatening retinopathy, there is treatment. It doesn't automatically mean that you're going to lose your sight. Um, we've got laser that's been around since the 50s, I think it is. Um, this will seal the leaking vessels. It reduces the regrowth of new vessels um, and regresses them as well. Um, we, the newest therapy we've had developed is the anti-VEGF. Um, vascular endothelial growth factor that's what it stands for um, it re, um, it blocks that um, and reduces it so that then slows vessel leakage and slows the growth of new vessels as well um, there's intravitreal steroid injections um, these reduce the exudates and the inflammation in the eye and then eventually there is um, vitrectomy and this is removal of that vitreous gel um, in the eye, and that will then remove uh, the new vessels and can remove any scar tissue as well that can affect eyesight. Because you have diabetes, unfortunately, you are at higher risk of other eye conditions. So you're more likely to have a refractive error. Um, so you're more likely to need glasses. Uh, it can cause diplopia, which is double vision. Um, and then you are also at higher risk of developing cataracts and those cataracts come in um, earlier in life than uh, people without diabetes. Um, and you're also at risk of developing glaucoma. Um, so as well as attending screening, you should really attend um, optometry, your opticians as well, because they're the ones who check um, for these things. Screening don't. And this is my last slide. So my take home messages, sight loss and blindness due to diabetes is not inevitable. Just because you have diabetes doesn't mean that you will go blind or you will develop a sight threatening form of retinopathy. Um, I think that's the biggest take home message. If retinopathy does develop, progression can be slowed or delayed, especially if you make changes um, to your blood glucose and blood pressure. Um, it really does make a huge difference um, in delaying the progression from happening. But if retinopathy does progress um, and you do develop sight-threatening retinopathy, there is treatment available. And the earlier um, the treatment is used, the better your visual outcome will be at the end. Um, genetics plays a role. Um, there are studies that have shown, you know, you can have really low HbA1c levels all of your life and still develop diabetic retinopathy. Um, it's not a given that um, lower blood glucose levels is going to, you know, low, you know, take your risk of developing this to zero. It, it, it's not. Um, but it ain't your fault. Um, you're trying your best to manage a 24-7 condition. Um, and it's not easy. It's definitely not easy. Um, so please attend screening and please talk to your diabetes teams um, for any advice that you might need. Um, and I think that is it from me. Yes. So I will now stop screen sharing, I think. There we go. Thanks, Becky. That was absolutely incredible and very, very informative. Uh, I've had a few questions come in as you were talking 
so the first one I've got is from Louise. So Louise, do you actually want to ask, or, or do you want me to ask on your behalf? Um, yeah, I don't mind. Um, hi, Becky. Um, thank yeah. you for your time, first of all, and Paul as well. Um, so I've had type 1 for 22 years, and over the years, well, the first few years, fine, but then over the years I had a few bleeds, and the next time they would they would have gone or there might be another one in a different place. Um, but earlier in, in the year this year, April, um, I had my screening and all of a sudden I just I needed urgent laser treatment. Um, and as far as I understand it, the laser treatment is they just crack on and do it within two weeks anyway, certainly in my area, which was brilliant. Um, I, I don't understand how that happened in a short period of time. I, it, it was, it was shocking. Um, but I did have COVID over Christmas. And I wondered if you know, or if there's proven to be any link that it might accelerate it or affect it in any way. That isn't known. Um, that's, yeah, it's, it's going to be part of um, a future study that we're going to be looking at. And I think there, there's probably other studies um, ongoing looking at it. It's possible that um, that it could have an effect, um, but we're really not sure at the minute. Yeah, I thought that probably would be the answer. I mean, I've got other symptoms, you know, COVID type things. I wonder if I might have long COVID because I'm still I know everybody is, but I'm still just absolutely exhausted all of the time um, and, you know, out of breath running up the stairs and so on. So I'm, I wondered if, you know, having that, even if it is. I don't know if it is long COVID, you know, I've not been to the doctor, but I thought perhaps it, you know, did have an effect. I don't know, but it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's shocking, yeah. really. not, you know, it's just, it's horrible. It's, it's not nice at all. Thanks, Louise. Uh, I've got a, a, it's not really a question as such, but Paul Pritchard has made a point here um, in terms of reading about people with type 1 diabetes getting diagnosed um, and then they go on to reduce their A1C rapidly and he's saying that there doesn't seem to be a connect between healthcare professionals discussing this with them and suggesting a slower reduction. Um, I tend to agree from my own personal experience, I'm only talking from an N equals 1 point of view, but I don't know, is there any evidence that that is happening, Becky, that those conversations are happening? I, I don't know. I don't work in a in a diabetes clinic as okay. such. I, I didn't know I whether think, maybe you'd seen it in the epidemiology data. Uh, no, um, I, I think people it's it's a subject that people forget about. Um, but when you're newly diagnosed with type one, it's not really that much of a risk because you don't have the retinopathy already there. But um, Certainly in type two, it could be um, because the retinopathy can develop before you're, you're actually diagnosed in type two. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's a topic that tends to get forgotten about um, by a lot of people. So I do like to try and raise awareness of it whenever I can, whenever I do a, a, a speaking session, um, just to remind people that it is something to bear in mind and you should be having these conversations with your patients so that they are aware of the risks that they are taking as well. 
And uh, next question I have is from Mo. Mo, are you happy to uh, to ask a question? Uh, yes, happy to give it a go. Let me know if my internet connection is dreadful. Um, so it's a pair of questions, the second one of which might not be uh, entirely in your wheelhouse. But the first one, I've heard that um, some high intensity sport or kind of really exerting activities can worsen your existing retinopathy if it's already at a certain point. The example I heard was, you know, if you were kind of a competitive weightlifter with kind of R2 pre-proliferative level retinopathy. Um, that's not my exact circumstances, but is there any truth to that? Um, I wouldn't have thought so for the the pre-proliferative uh, level, but certainly if you've got um, proliferative, if you've got new vessels developing, they would tell you you really should be looking at not doing high intensity uh, exercise until it's fully treated because it could mm -hmm. um, it could make the blood vessels burst earlier. And so, you know, you could have the bleeding coming out. Um, but in pre-proliferative, it wouldn't really push you into the proliferative level because you need those blood vessels to grow. So, but yeah, certainly in the in the proliferative level, you don't want to be doing any serious weightlifting or anything like that. <laughs> cool. But that's the sort of thing where if my retinopathy progressed to that stage, I would expect to be told, like, throttle it back. Yeah, yeah, your, your ophthalmologist should have those conversations, or you, you should bring it up with <laughs> your then at least, you know, um, what sort of exercise am I okay to do? And, you know, things like swimming and, you know, all those sorts of things are, are fine. But, um, yeah, the, the higher intensity would be a problem. Cool. Thank you. Paul, can I ask my second question? Yes, go for it, Mo. Bro. Um, so thanks becky again this might not be quite your wheelhouse like i said but i i can't really find the answer to this easily anywhere else without it becoming too vague or too terrifying and um, what would be the signs of kind of a sudden bleed in the retina or in the eye or kind of what sort of changes in my sight should i watch out for and more importantly then who would i contact if i think it's happened so um to contact, your best bet is either to go to hospital eye casualty or um, your optician, because your optician could check it for you in a quick, quick way. Um, and you're really looking for signs, um, flashes of light, or um, I, I'm trying to think of the words now. Um, yeah, it, it's sort of um, flashes of light. Or Paul, you, you've experienced it, haven't you? So. What, what was your experience? Actually, I've not had a bleed. Oh. Uh, so my, my experience has only, I say only, has only been from maculopathy and having some extensive laser treatment uh, on that. Um, so uh, I, I can't actually speak from personal experience. I can relay what I've heard other people tell me um, uh, with having cloudy vision or loss of vision or getting a red tint to their vision. Yeah. Um, but whether there are other symptoms, I honestly don't know. I've not looked. Probably out of fear, for being honest. <laughs> um, so Yvonne has made a point on here about this is all well and good, providing we can get screening, which kind of lines me up to asking a question. There's, there's some work going on about moving screening to annual screening instead of annual screening. 
is that a good or a bad thing? You know, we I, I know here in Wales we've been struggling to get annual screening because of lack of capacity, but could moving to two-year screening actually be a benefit beyond just getting an appointment? Um, there's quite a bit of evidence behind two-year screening. Um, and basically it's that, that risk. If you go back to that slide that I showed you of, if you have no diabetic retinopathy, your risk of developing a sight-threatening version of it in the next three years is really, really low. Um, so screening, um has reached capacity we can't screen everybody annually we just can't keep up so the only answer would be give screening more money but then obviously there's only so much money to go around um so they could employ more graders and more photographers um or move to two-year screening for those who are really likely to be low risk um and i think if you the theory is that if we move those who are that low risk out to two-year screening, it would then free up capacity for us to make sure everybody with background retinopathy has annual screening. And then those with pre-proliferative retinopathy or maybe even maculopathy could be seen in three to six months, every three to six months. And also our pregnant women. Pregnant women need more frequent screening, so they need to be seen every three, uh, three to six months anyway. So um you know it, it really would free up some capacity in the system to allow us to make more changes um, and to see people more often who need to be seen so it, it does have quite a few benefits to, to i think there's a been a pilot project on this running in liverpool that shows some really promising results um yeah, the, the, the Liverpool study, they did, they've done the largest um, ophthalmology study, actually, on, on uh, two-year screen intervals. Um, and, yes, they, they take more than just what your level of retinopathy is. So they would also look at your HbA1c level and I can't remember what other, blood pressure would be another factor. But they had a lot more data than what screening can do. So they can really sort of, risk stratify um you know and make sure it is um safe for you to go out to two years um i think they've had a lot of feedback in that um if there are changes so if all of a sudden your hba1c level goes up or you know you're worried um there might be something going on there there has been they have had feedback in that you could be seen more quickly if you went out to two years, um, you know, there would be a mechanism to come back into the system a bit earlier if something did go wrong. Um, so that is still ongoing in Liverpool. And we're, we're testing that system now in Wales as well, um, down in Swansea with the, the sale data bank. Um, so we're just making sure it is 100% safe. There's been a couple of comments coming in here, one from Jackie saying that... Uh, when she had a bleach, she had wriggly worms in her eye. And one from Wendy saying she had a cobweb in front of her eye. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and uh, somebody else saying floaters when you have a bleed as well. Uh, so uh, message, uh, a question from Jackie. Jackie, are you there? Do you want to actually ask this in person? 
Um, yeah, I'm here. I think um, it, I, I struggle really when I go to ophthalmology. I go every six months. I'm very short-sighted and have been since I was very young, um, as well as having the start of cataract, the start of molecular degeneration and retinopathy. Um, but I, I struggle to get information when I go to the ophthalmology department. It's um, I don't know if it's done the same everywhere. You're on a bit of a system and everyone's going in and out and, you know, getting the drops in and uh, various things. But I don't actually get any feedback of what's exactly what's wrong, how it's progressing, is it getting worse, or even have the chance to, uh, you know, talk about my worries with it and especially wanting to work for another 15 years, potentially. And I don't know if I should expect more or whether I need to write to find out more. I don't know. I think, I mean, ophthalmology clinics, my experience of them is that they are very rushed and there is a lot of people trying to be seen and not enough ophthalmologists and not enough time. So I think it's probably a time constraint because I think if you sit there and you talk to them and ask them questions if you you know explain your, your worries and your fears I would hope that they would engage in that conversation with you and um you know go go into more detail but I think yeah I think it's it's the time pressures on ophthalmology and there's so many people waiting um to be seen that is the main issue there mm. Yeah, because I think I think it is very hard to get advice as to whether you can be doing anything yourself to keep things on track. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think they're also aware as well that, you know, they can't really give you the diabetes advice because no, they're not that side of it. So I think there may be some fear in getting in, you know, involved in those types. Yeah. Of so they I mean, they should be referring you back to your diabetes team um, okay help yeah. you with that sort of side of things but um but yeah I, I i just think it's a time pressure mm -hmm. problem okay all right thank you so becky uh, another question that i have is on emerging technology you know you mentioned at the beginning of your presentation about how we all hate the eye drops so What's the future of screening? Are we still going to carry on with eye drops? Is it going to be something else? The foreseeable future, we are stuck with eye drops, I am afraid, because um, screening has, well, in Wales, we've got 24 cameras. So to replace those, change them all, is going to cost a lot of money, um, unfortunately. There are newer technologies come in i mean i know in in ophthalmology they've got wide field cameras called optos and i don't believe you need eye drops with that but it's a very large piece of equipment and it costs an awful lot of money um so i don't think it's going to be practical for screening um there are some oct cameras that um uh, opticians have that you don't need drops to use but again they're expensive bits of kit and whether or not they've been tested um, from the um, retinal photography side of things um, 
I, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, I mean, it would be really nice if we could move away from eye drops, but I think, I think even if we could move to a staged approach, so in um, Scotland, because they only take the one image, um, they actually will try everybody without drops in the first instance. And then if that fails, they will then use um, eye drops. If we could do that in England and Wales, I think that might be, you know, one, one approach, um, but it would mean longer screening appointments. So instead of, you know, you sit in a waiting room for 20 minutes and then get your photographs taken, you'd have to have your photographs and then if it failed, you would then have to go back to see the healthcare assistant to get your eye drops put in and then go and wait for 20 minutes. So it would make the whole process longer. Um, but I think it is something that is going to be looked at in the future because, I mean, I, I don't know if you all saw, but I ran a poll on um, Twitter this last week. And it seems to be, everybody seems to think that it's the pain of the eye drops that is the biggest issue. But what it came out in the poll was that was wasn't you know that's fleeting for most people if there is any pain, but it actually causes migraines or makes people so tired that it, it wipes out the rest of their day. So it's the it's the inconvenience that they cause um, with the blurred vision, migraines, headaches, etc. That that that's the bigger issue that and I don't think screening is necessarily aware or taking those into consideration at the moment so we do need to raise awareness of that. I think that's quite an important point because you mentioned about a, a kind of a double stage appointment and, and the appointment taking longer but if you've got the drops the rest of the day is pretty much wasted anyway so from one point of view it's kind of irrelevant and if we could actually condense the uh, more, get more people through that initial screening phase and then get uh, fewer people through the more intense screening save phase as in those that actually need it it might actually be a good thing yeah yeah I, I think it's I think certainly in England they are looking at it um, Wales will usually follow what England do so eventually um, so yeah I, I think it's one for the future that they may go to stage screening. It'll certainly be easier and more cost effective than doing trying to get new cameras in. Um, okay, I, I got a, a another question here on one of your slides. You said about HbA1c reduction of two percent, which is great, but let, I think that's just two percent in old money. It's not a two percent reduction in modern millimoles per mole. Just wanted to clarify that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm research, and so I'm still old school, old money uh, in my HbA1c reading. So every time I get a, a millimole per mole reading, I have to convert it back to percentages. <laughs> I, I, I still have to as, as well, Becky. Um, so in terms of relating that back to millimoles per mole, is that like 10% or something? 10% reduction? Is, is, would that be a, a reasonable start point? Uh, yeah, I think it's one percent is roughly about ten millimoles per mole, isn't it? So it, it's that's the equivalent. So yeah, um, you wouldn't want to be doing twenty millimoles per mole, you know, in that short period of time. And, and actually, I think that with uh, more of us getting access to things like Libra, 
and we are looking at a estimated A1C, I think that we're actually in a better place where we can actually manage this. Whereas in the past, it's just been, forgive the pun, but blind. Yeah, um, and actually, it was, it's been really interesting to see um, Fraser Gibbs publish some of the Libra studies looking at retinopathy, and there hasn't been any early worsening as far as they've picked up so far, which is quite good news. There's another question on here uh, from P's iPad. Um, I'm not sure whose P's iPad is. Um, it says... I had three laser treatments, then had a massive bleed and have had emergency eye op. I might need laser treatment on my other eye, but can the laser treatment cause another bleed? 32 years of type one, HbA1c 6.9, please ask for me. Um, laser wouldn't actually cause a bleed. Um, it's just your, the progression of your retinopathy. Um, so the laser isn't the cause, it's just the timing of it. You know, it's coincidental. Okay, so I think that we are pretty much out of questions. I'm not seeing any others coming in. Have I missed anything? If I've missed your question, please put it into the chat window now. Or raise your hand. Okay, in that case, I'm going to wrap up there. Thank you very much, Becky. That's a really fascinating presentation. And I think that most of us have found this incredibly useful. I think it's taken some of the myths away around retinopathy and hopefully some of the fears away when we get that dreaded letter dropped through the letterbox from the screening service. Um, so that, that is absolutely wonderful. And uh, I know that Becky's already done a lot of work on the Diabetes 101 account on Twitter, uh, and she's got some tutorials on, on, a, um, on this subject, but this is also going to become a podcast and it's been recorded, so this will also be available from the Transform Your Diabetes website later. Um, probably take me a couple of days to get the video live, if I'm honest. Um, but thank you very much for your presentation and thank you for attending. And perhaps I'll see you next time. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, guys. That was really good. Right. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.